0: Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. This is part two of my discussion with Dr. Danielle Serrano, who's a pediatric nephrologist at the Children's Hospital of Colorado and University of Colorado. If you haven't listened to part one, you're definitely going to want that. It's a fantastic foundation of general approach to kidney disease in the acute care setting and a lengthy discussion of acute kidney injury and all of the things that go into that. Part two today, we're going to discuss the new diagnosis of end-stage renal disease some specific electrolyte abnormalities and then some other conditions such as hus a little bit of a grab bag of everything i'm going to lead you right back into the middle of our discussion So maybe moving on from that, what about the patients who show up and have new onset, very severe uh, kidney disease? So they show up and they basically have end-stage renal disease at first presentation.
1: Right. So we get a couple of these per year. And they're always... It's, it's interesting because it's one of those things where it's kind of twenty twenty 20 hindsight. Right. Um, so... End-stage renal disease, CKD, chronic kidney disease in childhood, can be incredibly insidious and subtle. And so you can have a kid walk in um, off the street, 13 years old, with creatinine at 10, who has posterior urethral valves. I've seen that. Um, obviously, he's had it his whole life, and he was able to avoid enough, et cetera. Um, and so these these kids can be scary, right? They often are triaged to like a lower level room because they are just coming in maybe with some nausea or vomiting. Cause you know their B1's like 170 or something. Um and so they look okay, maybe a little punky, but they're not usually critically ill. And so often it's a huge shock if someone gets labs when they come back. And again, um, there's some basic rules in medicine, right? Your, um, Like I said, your hemoglobin and your calcium should be higher than your potassium. These are the kids that those things are all kerfuffled. And so, you know, their B1 could be sky high, their their K can be high, their, their bicarb is usually low. And one of the things that, um, you know, it's, it's the arrhythmias that we really have to worry about early on. So um, the nephrologist view of the heart is that the pump needs to pump to perfuse the kidneys and arrhythmias are bad for that. Uh, so hyperkalemia and then hypocalcemia. So it's not just their total calcium we need to think about. It's also their ionized calcium. And these kids can present with tetany. Um, they can present with anemia. Um, there's, there was a nice article for a few years back, but um, kind of common presentations for um, chronic kidney disease in kids and when should people think Think about it because it's so subtle, but they're very common complaints, right? So um, nausea, vomiting, poor school performance, pathologic fractures, unexplained anemia, um, hypertension, and then if you think about dysfunctional voiding, the number one cause of chronic kidney disease in pediatrics is some type of congenital anomaly of the kidney and urinary tract, like you know, posterior valves or obstructive nephropathy, and so. That's where that anatomy comes in, right? And so the first thing, again, is just to stabilize them. One one maybe first step is to check your own pulse. Remember, this, this has been going a long time. The kid is already safer because they're now in front of you. So the first thing to do is manage the electrolyte abnormalities. Of course, call us on the phone. But very rarely do we need to emergently start... Um, Dialysis on a kid presenting with ESRD because we have all kinds of bags up, you know, tricks up our sleeve. Um, the first thing, right, is typically to give calcium, um, stabilize the myocardium, particularly if they're hyperkalemic. You do want to be thoughtful though if they're if their phosphorus is twelve or thirteen, um, you have to think about their calcium phosph product. But typically. Calcium, Ionized calcium is often low, we need to stabilize that. Um, and then importantly, when we correct hyperkalemia, again, their bicarb is going to be low, so it's almost an easy fix, right? Because you just play hide-and-go-seek with potassium. You correct their acidosis and all that potassium goes intracellular. So I'm the first thing I want to hear if someone's worried about hyperkalemia is what's the bicarb? Because if the bicarb is low, you can make a lot of headway by correcting that. However, you can't just give bicarb, bicarb, bicarb in these kids because as you correct the acidosis, you're gonna increase how much calcium binds to albumin, which in the setting of a low ICAL can already can can drop that further. And so you can cause tetany and arrhythmias from that. That's why I always I'm very simplistic, so I think reverse alphabetical order, calcium, then bicarb, calcium, then bicarb. And you know, Rome wasn't built in the day. You correct this over, you know, twenty-four to forty-eight hours, as long as they're they're stable from a, an electrolyte perspective. But these kids will walk in not looking bad, but we typically send them often to the ICU first for that you know, close electrolyte monitoring um, and worrying about arrhythmias rather than sending them up to the floor.
0: Potassium hide-and-go-seek sounds like a fantastic game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you can only pee it out, pooper out, or dialyze it off to get rid of it. Um, and so if they are not going to respond to diuretics, and you know, you can certainly give k And again, we don't usually just throw in a line quickly to dialyze these kids. So the hide-and-go-seek is important. And if that bicarb is low, you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck there. So I very rarely do like insulin and glucose.
0: I always find emergent dialysis a bit of a misnomer Especially in somebody who doesn't already have somewhere to do it, because uh, emergent right. is still multiple hours away.
1: Well, you know, I think it, it really does depend on how quickly. I think my record as a fellow was within 15 minutes of getting to the really? picky. Yeah, we. So, I mean, you can. It's all about the line, right? And then also, there, it does take some time to get the machine set up. But right. yes, you're right. It does take a couple hours. But um, I guess it's all relative. I'm quite impressed. by What you. I consider emergent <laughs> and a success, and what you consider <laughs> emergent and a success, might be the different. Time things. Right.
0: Um, so you let us right into uh, the electrolyte that uh, I think the ER docs talk about the most is potassium. Right. In particular, if it is too high. Yeah. What is too high? And so, w- it, what do I do about it?
1: So it depends on the age of the child, right? If, if it's a neonate and they're potassium six, I'm not too worried. <laughs> if it's my grandpa and it's potassium six, I am worried. Um, so Infants can can handle, you know, they usually ride a little bit higher on their Ks and their fosses, but certainly if we're getting above 6.5 in that regardless, first thing, of course, is to make sure it was a good draw and no hemolysis and even, you know even if they don't see visible hemolysis, there might have been. So ask the bedside nurse, how was that draw, et cetera. Again, don't panic, um, but you don't want to not take it seriously. I think one of Team Renal's uh, pet peeves is that often people are like, well, we're getting the EKG, and if you think it's real, what is the EKG doing?
0: Well, uh, I'm a little bit afraid to answer because I feel like this is going to be stupid, but um, my concern on the EKG is to show uh, whether the heart seems to be caring about the elevated potassium And if so, if I more uh, urgently need to provide them with some calcium.
1: And so I have no problem getting the EKG. But I think that the worry is if it is like, well, let's see what the EKG shows first. Because if you have like a KF7, you know, if it's really hyperkalemia and particularly in the setting like an ESRD or where it makes sense and you don't think it's just gross hemolysis, right? right? But you're taking it seriously and your hyperkalemia spider, spidey sense is going off. Then give calcium. Uh, And then, and also, you know, there's, we, we work in an institution where there's an order set. So that's awesome. But if you don't have an order set, um, I think there's a mnemonic that I had heard when I was a fellow. So like see big go home. So calcium, bicarb, insulin, glucose, and then I guess hemodialysis. Would be the H. I, I don't, don't know. I'm not sure what the um, go home part of it. Yeah, means. I, don't,
0: I don't know. But go, I'm going to list our order
1: set on the show notes. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and, oh, good. And, but, yeah, I get, but I get
0: your point on the on the EKG. If like if you are sure that this calcium is particularly high and is going to need to be addressed, the EKG is calcium. not going to take you away from that. I think I often think about it where it's a little bit high and you're trying to figure out whether they actually need calcium or whether you could treat this later. Um, And those are usually the mild elevations. Well, I think
1: what's scary is that there's no no symptoms in hyperkalemia. And so you're okay until you're not.
0: I once heard somebody tell me that the presenting symptom of hyperkalemia
1: was death. Yeah. And so one of the um, people I trained with on their fellowship, brilliant nephrologist, Really should have known better, but he's from South Africa and I think had had really bad, like, uh, like a GI illness. And so I guess there they'll just take potassium tabs. And so he was taking his own potassium tabs, was chronically on lysinopril. in April, and one evening he kind of looked over at his wife and was like, "I feel like I'm about to die, and I feel this, this like I think he said a, like impending death and doom and despair. He just felt badly, and so she took him <laughs> to the emergency department. His K was like seven point eight. Cool. Um, so I guess I guess that has been described. Where, you, but you know, good luck getting a four year old to tell you that, you know. So again, I think it's considered asymptomatic, and I think if you think it's real, give calcium. And then again, to get rid of total body potassium, you can pee it out. So you can, if they're making urine, give them a diuretic. If that you can have them poop them out, so k if they can handle it. Remember, don't give k to neonates. There's an increased risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. And then we can dialyze it off. Now, that is a little bit of a, a frustration as well. Where we'll get called with like a KF7, like, do you need to do dialysis? Well... We have a huge toolbox medically, and honestly, most nephrologists think of hyperkalemia as general medicine, and it's really only renal when you do get to the point where you need dialysis. So, you know, pee it out, poop it out. If that's not working, okay, but the bulk of our fix and the bulk of our medical powers, you know, um, comes from playing hide-and-go-seek, so getting it to go intracellular, so, you know... Alpha beta agonists, um, insulin, glucose. It's not the glucose; it's the insulin. But you know, you want to maintain their serum glucose. Um, and then again, from my perspective, absolutely bicarb. Especially since again, I have ascertainment bias. Most of the kids I'm getting called about for hyperkalemia have a low serum bicarb. If the low serum, if the bicarb is low. Thank your stars because it's going to be a much easier fix. And if the bicarb's normal, you're not going to get any more bang for your buck for giving them more bicarb. So that's really kind of the first thing I want to know. Do
0: you have anything else to say on potassium? No. Ren stage renal disease?
1: No. Okay.
0: We talked a little bit about blood pressure earlier. Are we still classifying elevated blood pressure by hypertensive emergency and hypertensive urgency? Or do I need to relearn some things that I was told in, in medical school?
1: Oh, jeez. Well, there are new guidelines out now which have adjusted... <laughs> From the nomograms and classifications. But from an emergency standpoint, I think, I think of, I still think of, and maybe I'm a little out of date, but hypertensive emergency is if you have symptoms. And so when I think about symptoms of high blood pressure, I always go head to toe. So severe headache, blurred vision, chest pain, and swelling. So if you have a high blood pressure with any of those, I consider that hypertensive emergency. There are also some um, uh, clinical signs like lab values. Um, you know, you can have thrombocytopenia, you can have anemia, you can have elevated liver findings. Um, <clears throat> so you, so if those kind of clinical parameters are there, you do want to think about hypertensive emergency. And those kids to me, sure, will start an oral antihypertensive, but they belong in the ICU. And it's important that we land the airplane don't drop the helicopter. It's actually dangerous to um, bring their blood pressure down to normal right away. We typically aim for you know a ten to fifteen percent reduction over the first eight to twelve hours. Um, so you can you can correct it too fast. It's unless they're having ongoing like symptoms and actively seizing you can't really correct it too slowly
0: so what what agent are are you? What agent are you recommending most often to bring this blood pressure down slowly?
1: Um, well, it depends on if they're on other medications. Often we'll do a nicardipine drip. Um, I'm also a fan of Esmolol. And certainly if, um, some of our kids, for example, who are on tacrolimus for transplant, immunosuppression, those kind of medications um, that can get impaired by nicardipine, the, the, um, how much it's cleared and metabolic metabolic clearance. So, you know, in that setting we would probably do Esmolol. But if someone has really bad, at you know, Reactive airway disease. We want to be very thoughtful about that as well. And as far as rescue meds, my favorite. I I've gotten away from nifedipine, to be honest. There's and at least in the in older kids in the adult literature, there's a higher risk of ischemic stroke using those rescue meds. particularly if you've if it's been ongoing for a while and your uh, neurovasculature is accommodated to those high pressures, dropping your blood pressure really fast is dangerous. So again, land the airplane, don't drop the helicopter. So my favorite rescue med actually is IV labetalol. Um, um, and you can give it fast. You can give it repeatedly up to a certain dose. It's a big, it's a big um, leeway though, and and they typically respond pretty quickly. Some of my colleagues like like IV hydralazine. I don't, I don't find that it works as well, so I I've actually never recommended it. Um, yeah, and,
0: and some of mine may be training bias, but nowhere that I did any sort of training seem to feel very positively about hydralazine for yeah. hypertensive emergencies in kids. So it's not a drug that I've really ever used. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um yeah so some of my part again some of this is and that's part of the fun and challenge of being a pediatric neurologist is you get these pockets of cultures and a lot of it is where you trained and who you trained with and so the more we can mix the pot and um you know collaborate and bring people to different institutions the better because I certainly learn a lot from my colleagues who have yeah. trained elsewhere. And
0: I usually take the approach that whatever whatever we're saying right now is the
1: the answer and everybody oh, else should just the gold do what standard. we do. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe I should maybe <laughs> I should flip my view. <laughs> Doing this wrong, clearly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so, uh, and then if they have uh, elevated blood pressure, but they are not having any symptoms, what then?
1: Yeah, so I guess that is where it gets tricky, like is it hypertensive urgency? And if it is a high number where you think, oh, my gosh, this kid could stroke, but they don't have any symptoms, I would classify that as hypertensive urgency. And I, again, we're, we're talking, you've done a manual pressure um, it's consistently elevated. You don't think it's fake. Um, those kids should be seen, and I, I mean, I'll admit those kids, you know, for a further evaluation. And historically, those kids went to nephrology first, right? Because historically, like eighty percent of the causes of pediatric hypertension, were renal in origin. And again, I'm a very simplistic person. From a renal perspective, there are only two reasons to be hypertensive. It's either renin-mediated or it's volume overload. You should be able to diagnose the volume overload with your clinical assessment. And most of the other ones are renin-mediated. So, you know, were they premature and had umbilical lines? So they have a UTI in the past. And a lot of that just just takes a small renal scar. (laughs) Again, WWJD, kidneys are the smartest organ in the body. If you have a nephron that thinks it's thirsty, what's it going to do? It's going to release renin. Um, so even just one prior UTI can cause hypertension. It's not usually hypertensive urgency, but you never know. I had a kid in fellowship who presented. I thought it was HUS. She, was, um, she, had, she had blurred vision, massive hypertension, but thrombocytopenia, anemia. Once we did the A in anatomy, we um, got her renal ultrasound and she had one small... Scarred kidney um that she had just been, so it wasn't actually acute, it was chronic kidney After disease when she presented, and you know she but she looked like h u s otherwise she you know, with her with her lab values um so that's uh it's just something to think about and so i think if if it's urgency, if it's a really high number, call your nephrologist, you know i think all all the nephrologists I know welcome like. Speaking to our um, our our frontline providers in the community and regardless of the area of community we cover, we're happy to kind of talk these things through. And do they need, like, can, can we just start something? Some of these kids can just start an oral antihypertensive and then come for outpatient evaluation. We just have to be thoughtful about what we start until they've had their full workup.
0: So on that, on that note, um, before somebody calls you with a patient with new onset hypertension, to review your four things. Right. You want want to know those four things before somebody calls
1: you. Or when they call me and they haven't done them, that's what I'm going to ask them to do. So have you, okay, so they're really hypertensive. Practically speaking, what are you going to be able to do first? Well, you're going to ask them to pee in a cup. And- the UA with dipstick. In the meantime, you're you can you draw draw your labs. Depending on where you're practicing, you may or may not have access to an ultrasound. And right. that's that's okay, right? It doesn't have to be done emergently typically. If they're getting admitted for hypertensive emergency or urgency, that'll happen on the inpatient right. side. And then otherwise it can happen on the outpatient side. Yeah,
0: and as, as point of care ultrasound gets uh, more and more readily available, I at least have the minimum skill to be able to say their kidneys on both sides and here is their size.
1: Right. That's uh, a, that's pretty plus huge. Plus or minus hydronephrosis. Well, and so that's, um that's really helpful because actually I very, I, um. Very rare circumstances do I ask for a Doppler. It's, um, I rarely ever actually want a Doppler. What I do want though is size symmetry. If one kidney is small, that tells me, hey, that's actually maybe a higher risk that they have renal artery stenosis on that side. Um, so that can be really helpful.
0: Um, all right. So we have talked about acute kidney injury, new onset end-stage renal disease, potassium. Cause mm-hmm. I love it, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, and hypertension. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to chat about today, because I think we talk about it a lot in the ER, mostly because it scares me, and I have diagnosed it grand total of twice in my in my life so far, is HUS.
1: Oh sure, the hus, um,
0: <laughs> the hus. Yeah. What is it? When should we be worried about it and what do we do?
1: Yeah, so hemolytic uremic syndrome is classified as a triad, right, of acute kidney injury, um, anemia, and thrombocytopenia. And it's really under the umbrella Um, pathophysiology of TMA or thrombotic microangiopathy. So HUS is a type of TMA. And that's important because that's um, it it can get confusing when we start to talk about atypical HUS, um, which we're diagnosing more commonly now that we're thinking about it more. But if we're just going to talk about straight up Pus. um Acute kidney injury, thrombocytopenia, and anemia. And typically in kids, it's after some type of shiga toxin, E. coli um, event. Now, remember, I have ascertainment bias, but it's, um, a, a, I was trained by Gary Lum to say a, a thousand people might eat the same E. coli contaminated food. One of them will get a GI illness and bloody diarrhea from it. And of those, one in a thousand might get HUS. so um, But we certainly see, I mean, we have a few kids admitted right now, particularly in the summer months, 4th of July. It's usually the HUS season um, in the summer. And so we, we certainly, again, see it. Um, some of the really important things from an emergency department standpoint, again, is to aim for uvolemia. It's tricky, right? These kids have had diarrhea, bloody diarrhea. They look dry. Oh, and by the way, mom's been giving, you know, Tylenol and ibuprofen at home because the kid wasn't feeling well. So they're, you know, might already have nephrotoxic um, insults. So we don't often know if they're going to make urine or not. And in that dry kid, judicious bolus, you know, maybe five per kilo reassess, another five per kilo reassess. Often, what precipitates us needing to dialyze them is if they get volume overloaded. And then again, if you have any concern about HUS, please do not give NSAIDs, regardless of if they're if they're febrile and they are not responding to acetaminophen. Give them a cold washcloth. Um, NSAIDs can really set us back. The first thing that goes down in HUS is the platelets. Thrombocytopenia appears first, and that actually what's That's what wreaks havoc in the glomeruli, it clots up the glomeruli. This is a
0: different mechanism of the thrombocytopenia than what you would see with hypertension we were discussing.
1: Right. Um, Yes. So this is really the platelets are um, clogging up the glomeruli. Um, And then so if you biopsy these kids, you'll see um, thrombotic microangiopathy on the biopsy. We don't typically biopsy them because they're thrombocytopenic and anemic, but if you did. um, And then the platelets are also going to be the first things that – uh, improve. And so we know the kid's usually going to turn the corner, hopefully, you know, when their platelets start to go up, but it could be a really protracted protracted course. And typically if kids need dialysis, they're going to need it for about 10 to 14 days. So I always tell parents to really brace themselves. Um, well, some, We used to mostly do peritoneal dialysis on these kids, which um, could be a little tricky urgently because we usually want to let the PD catheters heal before we start putting fluid uh, into the belly, so they don't leak everywhere. But often now we just do acute intermittent hemodialysis if needed. Um, and it's also important to recognize that these kids can develop neurological symptoms, seizures. because The TMA can cause neuro issues. And then if it's a very severe course, we start to maybe think about atypical HUS and whether eculizumab might be might be a benefit. But straight up E. coli. STIC, HUS, it's really just supportive care, renal rest dialysis if they need it. And then the anema, anemia is often the, the one that lags the most, takes the most time to recover.
0: Cool. I think we have to let you go here soon. Actually, okay. like 10 minutes ago. Oh, okay. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with, like any particular axe to grind that you would like the the emergency room to know about?
1: No, I really think um, the further you get away from medical school, right, the more intimidating the kidneys can seem when, when we read about and learn about it as medical students, uh, or if you're doing like a renal month, everything makes sense. So that's, that's the bubble I get to live in. So that's why I would really encourage you to just, if you have one take home message today, really think about the fabulous four. So function, anatomy, blood pressure, urine. And if you can just remember that, and if one of them's abnormal, think about the other three, check the other three. Um, you're really gonna set yourself up to not panic and to do a, a, an appropriate assessment and, and provide excellent care. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's going to wrap up the second part of our discussion with Dr. Danielle Serrano on pediatric kidney disease. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really does help other people find the show. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine.